Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Thank you, choir. Uh, I hope I hope that our hearts truly do hunger for God today and uh, that your heart is to Uh, the gentleman who did our call to worship is Dr. Hemphill, Dr. Ken Hemphill. Um, God has brought uh, Dr. Ken, Ken Hemphill and his wife, Miss Paula, uh, to our church, and they have become members of our church. And uh, he has pastored for a long time, uh, served in most every function inside of the Southern Baptist Convention that you could, whether it was a seminary president at Southwestern Seminary for about a decade. Uh, uh, or the North American Mission Board, or uh, Lifeway, he's written for Lifeway a good bit, and, and he's also pastored churches, and I'm sure that I'm missing something, but uh, um, uh, he's a great gift of God to us at Seneca Baptist. He will actually be preaching the next two weekends, and, uh, and so my wife and I get to go on a, a late Valentine's vacation uh, in a couple weeks, uh, not this Monday, but next, and we're not taking any children. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Uh, so anyways, um, Dr. Ken Hemphill is going to be preaching. I'm going to be with you. Uh, so listen, I, I know. I know how it goes. Uh, when the cat's away, the mice will play. When the pastor's out of town, ain't nobody shows up. I'm going to be here both weekends. I'm just not going to be pre- preaching, but I'm going to be taking roll, okay? I know where you sit as good Baptists, so I'm going to be taking, I'm watching you. Uh, so come it's going to be a blessing. Dr. Hemphill is going to lead us well and preach well the next couple weekends, and I'm excited about that. Uh, and so there you have it. I'm looking forward to it. We're in Luke chapter 22, verses 47, all the way down to 62. And what we have read through today in this passage is two very bitter, hard uh, passages lumped together. Very difficult. Uh, the reason they're so difficult is because it's very easy to find myself in them. It's very easy to find myself in them. And so as I've been preaching or praying through this to preach this, one of my prayers is, God, prepare me for the message. Prepare me for the message. Don't, don't just prepare the message for me to preach, but prepare me for the message. And in doing so, I find myself in this passage in far too many places. Far too many places. And none of them are wonderful. None of them are wonderful. And so as we look at this passage today, we're going to look at four different groups of people and their responses to Jesus. Their responses to Jesus, and then we're going to see what God could teach us through each of their responses. But there's a lot of interconnectedness over the past few weeks uh, as we've been preaching through Luke chapter 22. There's a lot of connectedness, and so I want to just go back and point backward to some different things. Verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, what 
is he speaking about? Well, he has just been in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and he goes off to pray a distance, a stone throws distance from his disciples, and he comes back and his disciples are doing what? What some of you are doing right now, right? And so he finds some of his disciples sleeping, and he says, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And so while he was still speaking, this happened. And then we hear about Judas. And when we hear about Judas in just a moment, we have to remember that as Judas betrays Jesus, that all of this was predicted or foretold earlier in chapter 22, where in verse 3 it says that Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was a number of the twelve. So we see this connection. Then somebody pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And uh, we see the connection because back in verse um, 36, we see Jesus mention a sword and they say, we have two swords. And he says, that's enough. And so we see a lot of connectedness in this passage. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And what do they see right after Jesus reminds them of that. They see temptation. Back in chapter 22, verses 31 to 34, Jesus says to Simon, Peter, Satan has desired you, demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you return, strengthen the brothers. And so we see a lot of connectedness in chapter 22 that's going to be helpful for us today. So the first person I want to look at The first person who responds to Jesus is this man named Judas. So let's read verses 47 and 48. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, who was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Verse 48, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, here's what I want you to understand, that this whole idea of being betrayed Uh, by a close acquaintance has been prophesied beforehand. 1,000 years before Jesus was ever born, there was a prophecy found in Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, which we have on the screen. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And then again in Psalm chapter 55, verses 12 through 14, It is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. And so we see a thousand years before Jesus is born, before Judas lived, there was an Old Testament prophecy speaking forward about how the Messiah would one day be betrayed by a close acquaintance. And so we see this in this passage. Judas, back at the beginning of chapter 22, makes a deal with the devil, makes a deal with the, um, the, the religious leaders to sell Jesus into their hands for a price of 30 pieces of silver. A lot of people will say, well, poor Judas. Judas didn't have any choice. But here's something I want you to understand today. In God's economy, there is a tension in the text. There's always a tension in the text. And there's a tension between the sovereignty of God, that God is in control over all things, guiding history as He wills, and... 
the, author, or the responsibility of mankind to make decisions. There's God's sovereignty, and we believe that God is sovereign. Amen? I could not sleep at night if I did not believe in the sovereignty of God. That there's a God who loves us and is in control of all of this mess around us. I don't know how I could sleep. But we also believe that mankind is responsible for their decision-making. They have the ability to receive or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question for each one of us is, what will I do with Jesus? What will I do with Jesus? So Judas here has, has been prophesied of one who would betray Jesus, yet also willingly makes the decision to betray Jesus. A lot of times, we need to think about it like this. In Romans chapter 1, it says that they uh, traded or exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So God gave them over to the desires of their heart. They had done this, and so God gave them to it. If this is what you want... I will give you what you want, although giving you what you want will harden you further against me. Are you with me, church family? Now, that's hard right there, isn't it? We're going to preach through the book of Exodus in a few months, and we're going to look or start the book of Exodus in a few months in May, and we're going to hear about Pharaoh, and there is that tension in Pharaoh's life. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened, Pharaoh rejected. And you go, which one is it? Did God do it or did Pharaoh do it? And the answer is a good Baptist, yes. Because we believe in the tension of Scripture, amen? Now, a lot of people would like to say, well, it's only God. And a lot of people would like to say, it's only man, God's not sovereign. The only God people would say, God does it and we don't have a, 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 a responsibility in it. And there are other people who say, God's not in charge of me, and we're both wrong. If we find ourselves in one of those camps, we're both wrong. But there is a middle place that says, God is entirely sovereign over the workings of the world, even the evil of men's hearts, yet we're still responsible for the evil of our heart. And so we see that in this passage of Judas. Judas betrays him over. And here's the irony within this passage. The irony within this passage is that he betrays him with a kiss. In the culture of the first century, a kiss was not a romantic thing. A kiss was not a romantic thing, but oftentimes a kiss on the cheek is an expression of love. A kiss on the cheek was a common greeting, a sign of deep respect honor, and brotherly love for a student who had great respect for his teacher. This was the kind of um, the culture around the, in the New Testament were commanded to greet one another with a brotherly kiss. I don't see that in the Baptist life. A bunch of disobedient Baptists around here not kissing one another. That's the kissing church down the road. Yeah, I know them. Right? But it was a, a, a kiss was well within a, a healthy um, expression of honor. And Jesus, Judas comes up to Jesus and gives him a kiss. He betrays him 
with the sign of honor in that culture. And that's just an interesting thought. There's, it's filled with irony. It's also interesting to me, think about all that Judas had experienced. Judas was there from the beginning, wasn't he? Three years Judas had been walking with Jesus. The best teacher on planet earth Judas had sat under. Judas had witnessed the miracles. Judas had witnessed the walking on water, the feeding of the multitudes, the the, the lame man walking, the blind man seeing, the dumb man talking, the deaf hearing. He had seen it with his own two eyes, yet he rejected Jesus. Judas, Judas was there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, and Judas was there among the twelve when Jesus gave the twelve authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to preach the gospel. And we're led at least to believe that Judas participated in the healing of the sick and the driving out of the demons and the preaching of the gospel, yet at the end he rejected Jesus. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. But they said to him, Lord, haven't we, haven't we preached in your name? Haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we done many mighty works in your name? And then I'll respond to you on that day. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Do you feel that? That's hard, isn't it? There is this idea in the passage that all of the spiritual activity that Judas was a part of, all of the teaching that he sat under, as great as it was, all of that could not change his heart or did not change his heart. So, three years, Jesus had been closely acquainted with Judas, yet Judas, three years later, rejected Jesus for something else. I told our SCA 7th grade and 8th grade chapel the other day that it's not about how you start. It's about how you finish a race. It's about persevering to the end. I, I want you to hear today from Pastor Ryan and from the Word of God that it does not matter in God's economy in heaven where you went to church and who was your preacher and what, how great his sermons were. What matters in the scheme of eternity is what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with him? Well, pastor, I was baptized at a young age. I was raised in the church. I was in church nine months before I was born. Matters little. What did you do with Jesus? It's interesting in the passage that it was one who was in the inner circle of Jesus, yet still rejected him. And we have Judas in this passage. The Proverbs say is, says in Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This was a, a sign of deep respect and honor used to betray and murder Jesus our Lord. So we see Judas and we feel the warning. Don't get comfortable because of your upbringing. 
because of your education, because of your training. Don't be comfortable there. The second group of people is the disciples. Look at verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? How many of you resonate with these people? You resonate with these people. You're like, oh, let's go get them. Somebody comes after your Jesus, we're like, let's fight. I want you to understand that in this passage, they have a sword, they see what's about to happen, and, and they say, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them leaps forward and cuts off a priest's ear. Now, the book of John tells us who the one was. Tells us the one was Peter. And we know Peter, when it was, was, Peter was a fisherman, not a swordsman, right? Because he did not intend to hit his ear. Amen, somebody. It's a good thing he was bad aim. Now, what I want you to see in this passage is that the disciples still were unaware of the intent of Jesus. They, he had said over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be betrayed. I will be handed over into the hands of sinful men. I will be beaten and mocked and crucified. I will die and rise again. Yet in this moment, the disciples did not revert to their spiritual uh, uh, life or the Holy Spirit living inside of them, but rather they tried to took matters into their own hands. Tried to take matters in their own, own hands. Just a warning. Beware of the thinking that I have to take kingdom matters into my own hands using my own means in my own strength. One of the downfalls of church in our history, some of our lifetimes, is that the world's ways have infiltrated God's kingdom. And so what we've tried to do in the church is to baptize a secular mindset or a secular methodology and make it Christian by adding Scripture to the end of it. The disciples were trying to take kingdom matters into their own hands. And kingdom matters always require kingdom methods. Always. And what's beautiful about this you see, one of them, verse 50, one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Verse 51, but Jesus said, no more of this. No more of this. Don't fight for me with swords. Do you remember what Jesus says in the book of Matthew in this very moment? Jesus, Matthew chapter 26, verse 52 and on. It says, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword in other words, I've got a better way of fighting. I've got a better way of fighting. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send uh, me more than twelve legions of angels? But if I were to do that, how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I'm going to say something kind of interesting today. I'm all for preaching the gospel, but I want you to hear me say that Jesus doesn't need defending. Jesus doesn't need defending. His gospel doesn't need defending. Now, follow me for a second. Charles Spurgeon, in a famous sermon uh, called Christ and His Co-workers, says it this way. A great many learned men are always defending the gospel. No doubt it's a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it's because the gospel itself is not being preached. 
Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion. A full-grown king of beasts. There he is in his cage. And here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, he says, well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was not humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him. For he would take care of himself, and the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Let the lion out and see who will dare approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. See, they they took this matter into their own hands, and what we see is they didn't understand. They didn't understand what was happening, did they? We're just trying to protect Jesus. What Jesus was telling them is, I can protect myself, guys. If Church family, if you will faithfully proclaim the gospel wherever you go, I promise Jesus will defend his own honor. So we see Judas, we see uh, the disciples, we see the captors. The captors, the very ones who came to get him. Look, Look at verse 51. Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple. Jesus has now been in Jerusalem for a period of time teaching in the temple every day. And he's saying, why didn't you come to me there? Did you, have you ever noticed that sin always loves working in secret? Always. Sin loves the darkness. It thrives there. Lots of sin has taken place in secret. Jesus says, but this is your hour. Darkness is your hour. And the power of darkness. Jesus says, yes, you're being used. You're being used as a a pawn in a plot that's bigger than you are. This hour of darkness is bigger than you and it's bigger than my disciples. This hour of darkness is a cosmic spiritual battle. It's taking place between the cosmic powers of good, Jesus Christ, the Godhead, and it's taking place between them and the cosmic powers of darkness. And you have been drugged into it and I see whose side you've chosen. What is beautiful about this is Jesus um, rebukes the captors for working in secret and simultaneously reaches out and touches the ear of his captor and heals it. Did, Did Malchus deserve the grace that he just received? Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't give grace to those who deserve it? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're like the captors. 
I mean, Ephesians says that we were children of wrath, that we were following the course of the air, the prince of the power of, of the world, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. That's who we were following. That was our master. But Christ died for us then. It's good news. It's good news that the very one who is arresting him has also received the grace of God. It's good news for you and me, isn't it? It's good news for the world that we can be saved. Why can we be saved? Because God looks down from heaven and he says, oh, that's got potential right there. No, that one needs me most. Jesus said, I didn't come for those who think they're righteous. I came for those who know they're sick. I came as a doctor, as the great physician of the world, and I came to heal the sin-sick soul. Do you know your sickness? Pastor Ryan, I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) Your words just prove how far from good we are. I love this passage. There is grace in this story, and it meets, the grace of Jesus meets the most unlikely and undeserving. Captors. And last we have Peter. Verse 54, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Can I? I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. This is a selfish uh, plug. Consider going to Israel with me in October. You will go to the courtyard where Jesus, where Peter denies Jesus. You will go into the house where Jesus was kept overnight. You will walk into the bottom of the pit where Jesus was held and questioned. And Peter, it says, was following him at a distance. First problem. Peter, an overlooked phrase, Peter was following him at a distance. It's always easy to deny Jesus when I'm following him at a safe distance. Let me be hypothetical for a second. What if Peter would have been arm in arm with Jesus? Would he have been able to deny him? No, but he'd have lost his life, wouldn't he? Peter denied Jesus three times over the course of this passage. The first was a, a servant lady. Weren't you with him? A woman, I do not know him. Verse 58, a little later someone else saw him. You're also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Verse 59, after an interval of about an hour, this only took an hour. Three times in an hour. Three strikes and you're out, Peter. Didn't take very long. Still another insisted, certainly this man also was with him, for he too was a Galilean. I remember when I moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I brought my southern accent to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and people were like, you ain't from around here, are you? you, you, ever, you have, have you ever gone somewhere, gotten on a plane, got off the plane, started talking to a local, and they just look at you sideways like, like a puppy dog? Where are you from? Seneca. Right? I'm from Seneca, South Carolina. Uh-huh. See, maybe it was Peter's dialect that gave him away. That accent that he had. 
Verse 60, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Can you imagine living Peter's life every day? You wake up to what? Every day, every day for the rest of your life, you're waking up to roosters crowing. To a reminder of your failure. Can you imagine what Peter is experiencing right here? Verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had told him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Can you imagine what Peter, the soul-crushing uh, distress that Peter is going through at this very moment? That within eyesight of the Savior, Jesus denied, or Peter denied Jesus three times. Verse 62, and he went out and wept bitterly. You know Judas went out and wept bitterly too? The good news, the good news in Peter's life is that in John chapter 21, John chapter 21, Peter restores, or is restored by Jesus. On a little, little beach, under a little tree, there's a, there's a church there now. It's called the Primacy of Peter. Right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the northern shore. And you remember the story. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Good. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Did he forget? Did he not hear me? Of course I love you. Good. Tend my lambs, Peter. Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know all things. You know that I love you. Good. Feed my sheep. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus restored Peter fully. The rooster was from that day forward a reminder of his sin and a reminder of the grace of God. It was a reminder of his failure and a reminder of Jesus' faithfulness. Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter, I did not say that I would not, I did not say that I would save you from your uh, your test or your trial, but I said that I would pray for you that your faith wouldn't fail in the middle of the trial. I did not tell you, Peter, that I would rescue you from the moment, but rather I'd rescue you from failure. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news that Jesus right now is praying for you that your faith may not fail? And it's the prayers of Jesus that hold you. And when you've turned again, Peter, strengthen the brothers. Can you imagine Peter's ministry after that? See, his failure fit him for his future fruitfulness and faithfulness in gospel ministry. I can't remember who said it, but before a man will use someone greatly, he must first wound him deeply. deeply. Before God can use a man greatly, God must first wound him deeply. Peter was wounded deeply, wasn't he? But he was restored by God's grace.
and used him greatly. So the question is, what's God teaching us? What's God teaching us today? Number one, following Jesus will become increasingly difficult. Following Jesus will become increasingly difficult. Happy news, right? We're glad of that, Ryan. You don't believe me. Okay, well, most people would say, well, I know like over there, those people in that far off distant country in a galaxy far, far away are being persecuted, but that will never happen in this great country of the United States, right? I want to encourage you to look north of the border. Gospel preachers and churches are being banned from saying certain things in their own churches. Gospel things. Scripture, preaching the truths of Scripture, confronting sin as sin, and they're being banned for it, from it, and arrested for it. Fined and penalized. And that's not too far away. I promise you it's coming. Following Jesus will become increasingly difficult. And this is not a bad thing, church. It's not something that you need to hide in terror for, from. It's an opportunity that God's giving to us. We live in exciting days. Exciting days. We'll say it again. Exciting days. You know, they don't feel really exciting. Well, they not, might, might not be exciting for my constitutional freedoms, but they are exciting for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was never promised by God constitutional freedoms, but I'm, I'm as free today as I will be free in a hundred years to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it might cost me something to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I'm free to do it. Whether people allow me to or don't allow me to, I'm free to preach the gospel. Following Jesus will be increasingly difficult. It's a good thing. Why? Because Jesus talks about in one of the passages, the wheat and the tares. There is a true church and there are nominal Christians in name only. And these increasingly difficult days, the in name only Christians will fall away. And the true church will shine brightly if it stands firm, walking closely with Jesus. It's a good day. And as the intensity of the opposition continues to increase, so will the differing responses be increasingly polarized. As opposition increases, people will polarize. Jesus said it. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to set households against one another. Father against son. Mother against daughter. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, which has never been surprising for me. But I, I came to set people apart, and it all has to do hinge on what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? A guy named pastor named Colin Smith says, when you get close to Jesus, one of two things will happen. Either you will become wholly his, or you will end up, I think we got this on the screen, Mr. James. Is it up there? Oh, I got Luke 22. I'm sorry, I left that on there today. When you get close to Jesus, one of two things will happen. Either you will become wholly his, or you will end up more alienated from him. Among those who hate Christ the most, some once professed to trust Him. His claims are so exclusive, His demands so pervasive, 
that in the end you must either give yourself to him completely or give him up altogether. There is no middle ground. And so this, to us, church, should be a caution for us to guard our hearts so that we do not drift away and follow him at a distance. Following Jesus at a distance will never pay off. Uh, You might have heard me or seen my quote on Facebook from uh, Spurgeon. He says, if Christ is not all to you, he's nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as part savior of men. If he be something, he must be everything. And if he be not everything, he is nothing to you. It will get increasingly difficult to follow Jesus. So let's remind or remember that caution to stay close to Jesus. The second thing it teaches us, we can't rely on our strength but God's. We need God's strength to follow Jesus closely in these days. You can't do it. Satan's been fighting against mankind for a long time. He's smarter than you and stronger than you and he will whoop your tail every day. But, God promises to walk with us and to strengthen us and to equip us for such a battle. And we need to walk in this world in the strength that God provides. Amen? Peter, Satan demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, but when you've returned, strengthen the brothers. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why pray? Because there is a reservoir of God's strength that is available to His children. If we would call out on Him, He will pour it out to us. Amen. Just amen to myself. We need the strength that God supplies. We are far too weak and far too frail to live the Christian life alone. Third thing we learn is that grace abounds in this story. Grace abounds in the middle of betrayal and failure. Isn't that good news? Christ is faithful. Christ is faithful. Last thing. Last thing we learn is following Jesus is of supreme value. Following Jesus is of supreme value. It is worth it no matter what it might cost you. There's one thing in life that is valuable. Of supreme value. And that is my relationship to a Savior that works its way out into my everyday life. There's one voice, one word that I want to be spoken over me, and it does not come from you or my wife or my children or my friends or my family, but it comes from my Father, well done, good and faithful servant. And I want Him to say of you the same thing that he, I want Him to say of me. Enter into my everlasting joy. So might we learn to say, like Paul, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. The course set out for me. And henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown.
heaven. Church family, I want to encourage you today. If, you, if you've never trusted Jesus, trust Him. Turn to Him. There is grace for the failure. There is grace for denial. There is grace in betrayal. There is grace that flows from the fountain of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. Trust Him. It's His work, not yours. Maybe you've run away. You've followed Jesus at a distance and you're experiencing the payoff. Turn to Him. Repent of that sin and run to Him and grab onto the fringe of His robe. Grab His arm, grab His hand and let Him hold you. Maybe you've got a wayward child and you've been praying for that wayward child for a long time. Let me tell you, there's hope for the wayward child because there was hope for Peter. Maybe if you have a wayward child... It's time for you to come and cry out to God here at his, this altar. Bring that wayward child or family member, parent, to the feet of a gracious Savior. Beg Him to restore them once again. And church as a whole, it's going to get hard. But it's an opportunity for faithful gospel proclamation. In the days ahead, might we shine brightly and let the lion out of the cage, let him defend himself. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed, you have an opportunity to come forward. Maybe you want to come and kneel at the altar. I'd encourage you to move. Bring a child, bring your own sins or failures, bring these things to him. Altars available for you. Father, we come to you tonight and we pray, or today, and we pray. We pray that your word would seep deep down, deep down into the crevices, the dark places of our heart, and your word, the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ, would expose the darkness of sin in my heart. It would bring it into the light, and it, you would deal with it. The grace of Jesus might superabound. In the light of our sin. Father forgive us when we fail you. Father help us to not follow you at a distance. Help us to not try to defend that which we're not called to defend. But help us to unleash the gospel of Jesus Christ like a lion. So that the gospel might go out and has the power to save souls. As following Jesus gets tough. Help us to be faithful. Strengthen us with all the, the grace of God. With power from on high. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And use your church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?